How will we live in a culture where people will want to say, that doesn't really seem to fit where we're at at the moment? And it won't be, will we be successful? That will not be the question. It will be, will we be faithful? Jonathan Sachs was the chief rabbi uh, of Britain for uh, quite a while until he retired. And he was explaining the difference between prophecy and prediction. He said, if a prediction comes true, it succeeded. But if a prophecy comes true, it's failed because a prophet speaks to warn. A prophet speaks to warn. And the prophets in the Old Testament are always saying, if you don't, you're going to bring the house down on you. If you don't, it'll be like you've brought collapse upon your own community, upon your own society. If you don't, if you don't listen. What does it mean to be people like that? Prophets. The first thing I want to say, and before I get to those three, is the thing about being prophets is you stand outside. You stand outside. You stand outside of the power structures. You stand outside of society. And you can see what's going on and you speak in. It's very difficult to be a prophet when you've got everything to lose when you're in the middle of it all. But here you've got three things at least about Amos from this passage we read together. Amos knew God and he was bold. He knew himself. The people, prophetic people know themselves. They were brave and prophetic people know their message. And I have to confess, I spent hours trying to find another bee that's better than backbone. Um, and I, I couldn't, I mean, there was one I, could, I got that I couldn't use in church. But apart from that, um, I was struggling to find, now you've got it, it's okay, I could have used it. Um, but it was like um, a, a, a prophet, they, they know their message and they've got backbone and they won't give way. Let me use them one by one. The first thing you see is Amos boldly praying. It's in chapter 7, verses 1 to 6. The sovereign Lord, this is how it starts. The sovereign Lord, God, says, this is what I'm going to do. And um, the, the vision is that locusts will come and they'll swarm and they'll get rid of all the crops. But the king will have had, the king will be okay. The king will have had his share first and then the rest, the country will be just wiped out economically. And Amos says, I cried out, Sovereign Lord, forgive. How can Jacob, the country, Israel, how can they survive? So small. And so the Lord relented. Then secondly, the Sovereign Lord was calling for judgment by fire, dried up the great deep, the massive sort of seas, and devoured the land. And Amos cried out, Sovereign Lord, I beg you, stop. How can Jacob survive? He's so small. And the Lord relented. And God said, that won't happen either. That's an interesting passage, isn't it? God said, this is what's going to happen. And Amos takes God on. You've got to know God really well to take him on. And what does Amos know? Amos knows that the God of the Old Testament is a God who 
is slow to anger, long-suffering, patient, gracious to generations and generations. And Amos is appealing to God's own character to say, God, that's not what you're like. Don't. It raises all sorts of questions, theoretical questions about prayer, about did God really change his mind just because Amos prays? Is that how prayer works? Do you change God's mind? Or does God pretend here? The Old Testament seems time and time to gain to re reflect the idea that when people of God pray, you change the future. You change the future. That's what prayer does. But what sort of prayer? Not, God, this is really bad news for me, but prayer that says, God, for our nation, do something different. Don't, don't bring the judgment that you could bring. Don't do it, God. It's that, you know, it's that classic definition of what it means to be an intercessor is the posh word for it. Someone who stands in the gap and says, this is what God would do, but I'm standing here holding the gap saying, God, don't do it. Prayer says nothing needs to be as it is. Nothing needs to be as it is. That's what Amos is saying. Amos is saying God's got this judgment planned and it's rolling out. And Amos is going, God, I want to direct my speech to you. I've been speaking to these people all this time, warning them. But now I want to speak to you, God. And I want to say to you, God, how will they survive? It's Amos saying, I'll crawl over broken glass for these people. It's Amos saying, I'll go to God and go to God. You know, I mean, when we spoke earlier about, you know, the characteristic of God, I didn't quite see what was going on with uh, Ewan at the front when, but when the word scary comes out, I don't know if it's you or, or God, but one of you was very scary at that point to Ewan. It was you. <laughs> But actually, you know what? Amongst all of the characteristics that we know to be true about God, that he is loving, that he is faithful, that he is just, that he is a teacher, that he's a creator, and all the things that we said, which are all right. The bit that we lose so often is the scariness. And I don't know, because I'm not told. But I don't think Amos is there shaking his fist at God. I think Amos is fully aware this is actually quite dangerous business, this prayer business. Prayer's not just going to God and saying, well, God, well, whatever will be, you know, hey, what can we do? Prayer stands in the gap and says, God, let the future be different. I'm going to change the future. I confess to you, I don't often pray like that. Not enough. And I suspect you don't either. Not enough. Not the passion that goes, God, I want it to be different. Bold prayer. Brave testimony. Amaziah, the priest of Bethel. Bethel's sort of like the king's place. And Amaziah is the priest. He's like the top dog there. And Amaziah says to the king, you need to know that this prophet is causing trouble. This prophet is being treasonous. 
this prophet is speaking against you, Jeroboam. You need to get rid of him. And Amaziah comes to uh, Amos and says, Amos, get out. Go, go home. We don't want your sort of people here. Go and earn your money in Judah. You'll earn more money in Judah prophesying than you ever will around here. Get out, go. And Amos stands in front of the priest, the guy who's the top dog, and says, listen, I, I wasn't a prophet. And I wasn't a disciple of a prophet or the son of a prophet. I was a shepherd and I looked after sycamore fig trees. That's who I was. And God got hold of me. And I don't know what else I can do. And the guy who had nothing stood up to the guy who had everything and said, I can't do anything other than speak what I hear. You saw it this week in a very small way. The Pope was on the plane out of America and was asked about Donald Trump. Donald Trump, who uh, had spoken about building a wall to divide America from Mexico to stop these poor migrants coming. We, we don't want them here. And uh, one of the reporters had asked the Pope, you've seen this on the news, the reporter asked the Pope, is that man a Christian? And... The Pope said, anybody who speaks about building walls rather than bridges isn't a Christian. And this is what Donald Trump said. For a religious person to question a person's faith is disgraceful. For a religious person to question a person's faith is disgraceful. How dare you? How dare you suggest that I, Donald Trump, am not a Christian? Amaziah, Jeroboam, they said the same to Amos. And Amos said, I don't know about the party politics here. I don't know about the rungs of the ladder. I don't know how you get a voice. All I know is this. I was nobody, but God got hold of me. I was a nobody, but God got hold of me. He was brave. He knew who he was. He knew what had happened to him, and he was not afraid. I've said before, you know, I, I don't really go for the whole melodrama of uh, what might happen in the future, because I don't think we know what will happen in the future. But this is what I do know. I talk to loads of folks in different contexts, and people say to me, about, particularly about workplace, they talk about the fear of workplace because if, if I do what I think is right, then I'll lose my job. That's what they're telling me. That's what people say to me quite, not every week, but quite regularly. That's a story that's very common I hear. And every now and again, people go, and it's, I can't say it to them, but they have to find it for themselves. People have to get to the stage where they go, well, even if that does happen, you will not frighten me because I know who holds me whether it's about whistleblowing, about ethical trading, whether it's about doing the right thing. This isn't about taking a tambourine to work and singing songs of, you know, Christian songs. It's not that. It's actually, I mean, you know, if you wish to do that, fine. Although not if you're a surgeon, please. Um, <laughs> you know. But it's actually about, I'm going to take a stand here about what I see as right and wrong. 
And I know there's people right now, and I don't know if it's here, probably not here that I'm aware of, but there are people who are going, I'm going to take a stand for what I know is right, even though everybody else is saying, I'll take everything off you. And they go, well, you don't hold me. You don't hold me and you don't own me. And that's what Amos was saying. You don't own me. Prophetic people are brave. And then finally, he was a man of backbone. Chapter 8, we read, again, just a long uh, chapter of judgment, that God's going to do it. And two things they talk about. One is that it be like an earthquake. Creation itself will, will tremble. That uh, idea of there being... Uh, verse 8 onwards, uh, the, the land will tremble, the whole land will rise like the Nile, it'll be stirred up, it'll sink again like the river of Egypt. This idea of the, there'll be a calamity. And then, and perhaps most frightening of all, verse 11, the days are coming when I'll send a famine, but not of bread, but a famine of hearing the word of the Lord. What do prophetic people look like? Well, People who are bold in prayer. They're people who are brave because they know who they're held by. And they're people of backbone who know the message and they don't, they don't move from the message. You don't change. <coughs> One of the questions that I think when we read the Old Testament is obvious is this. An obvious question rather is this. Is, that, is the God that's portrayed in the Old Testament, is that like the God of the New Testament? Because sometimes what we kind of want to say is, but that's like the scary God of the Old Testament. But the New Testament is all about love, you know, and it's all much nicer. And can't we leave these prophets behind? Because they're like just really hard. But in the New Testament, it's just love one another. And I just wanted to remind us this morning, as people who want to be the prophetic people of God, but actually you've got to be, we have got to be on the side of God. And four very quick passages. In Revelation 2, and uh, you might remember this, but in Revelation 2 and 3, there are messages to seven churches. And all apart from one of them, God says, you're doing fine, but... And there's, there's something going on. And in the first one, he says, you know, I know you've worked really hard. I know your actions. I know that you've kept going. I know that actually you don't put up with nonsense. You don't put up with wicked people. But, but, but this is what I hold against you. You've left behind the love you had at first. Your heart's gone. And this idea of standing as a prophetic people, one of the things you can end up doing is you can stand really hard. And in Revelation, it's like you, your love's gone. You don't love anymore. You just really sound off about everything. And what God says to the Revelation church is this. If you don't repent, I'll come and I'll take your lampstand from its stand, from its place. And the, the, the language, the metaphor is using, the picture is using, his lampstand is the church. God says, if your heart goes, I'll close you down. I'll close you down. 
In 1 Corinthians, Paul's talking to the Corinthian church about the Lord's Supper. And he says this. We had a bit of a panic before because we didn't have any bread for communion. We have now. All is well. And in a moment or two, we'll come and because it's church, you know, you'll take a little piece of bread and a little cup. But in Corinth, um, it was nothing like this. It was absolutely nothing like this. It was more like our meals at the end of church that we have, that we had last week. And it was in the context of that, it was a proper meal that they would remember the Lord's Supper. And in a sense, what happened was over the sort of history of the church, it became that because that came like a symbol of that. But that that we did last week was probably much closer to what the Corinthians were doing than that was. They would, they, if a Corinthian could sort of time travel and come to Elam Church and go, so you're having the Lord's Supper. Oh, excellent. And they go, oh, is that it? Because uh, they go, well, that's nothing. That's like a little symbol. But that, that was what it was. But here's the point then. In chapter 11, verse 21, verse 20, when you come together, he said, it's not the Lord's Supper you eat at all. For when you're eating, some of you go ahead with your own private suppers, and as a result, one person remains hungry and another gets drunk. Don't you have homes to eat or drink in, or do you despise the church of God by humiliating those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you? Certainly not. And then he says that little piece that we repeat sometimes, for I received from the Lord that which I handed on to you, that on the night he was betrayed, he took bread and he blessed it. That piece that you know really well. But then in verse 27, he says this. So whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of sinning against the blood and body of the Lord. Everyone ought to examine themselves before they eat of the bread and drink of the cup. But those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ eat and drink judgment on themselves. That's why many among you are weak and ill and a number of you have fallen asleep. Now, it's not my time to do a big exposition of that except to say this. When I was growing up, I thought and I was taught that what that meant was that before you took communion, you had to screw your eyes up really tight and you had to get a picture in your head of the cross. Because otherwise, if you didn't get that picture in your head of a cross and how much it cost Jesus, then somehow something bad would happen to you. So I'd be there like a teenager with my eyes really screwed up, really thinking about a cross. And I think it might mean something like that, but actually I think the much bigger picture is this. If you don't give a monkey's about anybody else except yourself, and you take communion, it will work against you. I think it means that if you humiliate the poor, the ones who have nothing, God will work against you. And he goes on to say, that's why some of you are weak, some of you are ill, and some of you fell asleep. And that doesn't mean they just fell asleep. It means they died. In Acts 5, don't worry, I've only got two more. In Acts 5, well, in Acts 4, you've got a scenario where Barnabas and uh, some of the people are bringing their goods and they're selling them. Uh, verse four, verse, uh, chapter 4, verse 34, in the church, there were no needy persons amongst them. This new church had the poor, but nobody was in need. Why? For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them 
and brought the money from the sale and put it at the apostles' feet and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold a field he owned and he brought the money and he put it at the apostles' feet. And then the story goes on about Ananias and Sapphira. Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but he brought the rest and he put it at the apostles' feet. And the story goes on that what happened was essentially Ananias and Sapphira lie. And it's in a context where everybody's selling stuff and bringing it, the money to church and saying, look, I, I had a field and I sold it and I want you to use it just to give to the poor. And Ananias and Sapphira, perhaps they looked on and they were jealous and they thought, some people, are, like that Barnabas, he's a, such a nice guy and people really think he's nice now because he sold stuff. They're really liking him. Why don't we sell some stuff? But, but rather than give everything, why don't we say we've given everything but just hold some back just in case? Well, some of you have been around a church long enough to know how that story ends. Ananias drops dead in church. And um, you have the amusing scenario of Sapphira coming in. Goodness knows where she'd been, but she wasn't there when Ananias, Ananias was telling his lies. And uh, Peter says to Sapphira, his wife, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of those who buried your husband are at the door and they'll carry you out as well. This was your average Sunday morning, really, I think, in uh, the Jerusalem church. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. The young men came in, finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Verse 11, perhaps it was never needed. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. Perhaps that wasn't needed. It was in the context of giving gifts to the poor. And it's not surprising, is it? Because in Luke, what's Jesus' first sermon? Jesus' first sermon is this. The Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. when the brother of Jesus is summing up what it means to be a Christian, he says this, pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. That's what God thinks is important. So here's the thing. I'm going to pause then. What does it mean to be a prophetic people? A prophetic people are people who know that God really cares about those without a voice. God really cares for those without a voice. A prophetic people know how to pray boldly. They know how to be brave when the powers want to come against them. And they, are, they do have backbone. They carry their message and they don't let go of it. In the New Testament... What does it mean? Well, there's always a danger that we create Christianity into our own image, where Christianity is about safety, comfort, security, and us. And all through the New Testament, I just picked out four pretty much at random. 
all the way through the New Testament, you have this same God wrestling with his people saying, I'm not, I'm not above closing you down. I'm not above working against you if you don't work for me. Sometimes I kind of, what I want to say next, I want to be careful about. Sometimes I wish God would do something quite as dramatic as that. Do you know what I mean? Like an analyst of fire, as long as it's not me. I want to make that really clear. I'd, I'd, I'd like it to happen at least once. I mean, you know, I'm not, not, with, not present company except, you know, obviously not you, someone else. But, but just once because then it would be like we would surely, surely we would never be fra- We would never, never, never forget that. Surely. Except Acts came before Corinthians. Well, the events happened before Corinthians. And those events happened before Revelation. And you do forget. And you know what I think is really frightening? And this is my opinion rather than anything else. I suspect there's loads of buildings that got church written on the outside where God said, you can join, you can be a part of a club. It's got nothing to do with me. And I don't want to, I, I mean, it's, that's, that's, even, that's scarier than Ananas and Sapphira. It's like, at least Ananas and Sapphira, do you know what I mean? It's like, show us. <laughs> but like that thing of, there's a famine of the word. You're desperately trying to hear from God and you can't. It's a famine of the word. That's the scariest place to be. Okay. Well, Moona, I hope that was easier than last week. Um, <laughs> but, but, okay, so here's, here's the moment. Here's the moment just, to, just to, to think for a minute. So as you listen, and you listen well, but as you listen... So what? So what? So how do we turn this from sermon to action? How do we turn this from sermon to life? (laughs) No, it's not rhetorical. No, no, no. I do actually want an answer. Yeah, sorry. Well, we'll give you a microphone then. <laughs> no, we will for the for the for the for the purpose of the tape, so we can edit it out later. Um, yeah, I was uh, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> it's not. Oh. Um, yeah, I was thinking about this need for boldness and whistleblowers, and how. We need that boldness to speak out sometimes when we know things are wrong, even at great risk to ourselves. And during the Second World War, a lot of the churches, unfortunately, sided with the Nazis. And there was a group called the Confessing Church. Um, I suppose the most famous member of that church was uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, and he, he lost his life in the end. Um, Martin Niemöller was a member of the Confessing Church and he wrote this poem, I guess as a plea for Christians to be able to speak up in the face, well, 
at, at risk to their lives. First, they came for the socialists, and I did not speak out because I was not a socialist. Then they came for the trade unionists, and I did not speak out because I was not a trade unionist. Then they came for the Jews, and I did not speak out because I was not a Jew. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak for me. It's really powerful. Thank you. Yeah. I was just thinking similar things to how you ended it, really, and I was walking the dog this morning, that it's a bit like a, a parent that, you know, when you get angry with a child, then you, it's sort of over and you know where you stand. But when a parent then withdraws from a child, that's the worst, that's that's a worse feeling than actually being told off and shouted at. And I was thinking about, about exactly what you said about how it would be if God, God's presence wasn't with us anymore. God said, right, you've, you've wanted to go on your own for this long. I've had enough. And I was, and it cast my mind back to, and I thought David had a similar thought in a psalm, didn't he? And I, and I, and I found, managed to find it with the aid of Google. Uh, psalm 51. And interestingly, he wrote this psalm when a prophet came to him. It says, a psalm of David when the prophet Nathan came to him after he'd gone into Bathsheba, after he'd, com he'd taken advantage of somebody who essentially didn't, who, was, who had no power. He took advantage of his position, of his power. And he, and he, and he slept with a woman who, wasn't, who was already married to someone else. Um, and in the middle of it, it's brilliant. In the middle of it, he says, "Create in me a clean heart, O God, and put a new and right spirit within me. Do not cast away, cast me away from your presence, and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Um, restore to me the joy of salvation, and sustain me a willing spirit." And then it goes down again. It says, um, "For you don't delight in sacrifice. If I were to give a burnt offering, you wouldn't be pleased. The sacrifice acceptable to God is a broken spirit." A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. And I just thought, it was just a simple thought, really, that what God really requires is a, is a soft heart towards him and a soft heart towards others, um, um, which is much more, he's not impressed with us going to do relig religious acts, as he's not really impressed with our, how many times we come to church or do meetings or even go and evangelize or anything like that. He's in, he looks at your heart, doesn't he? And what a terrible thing it would be to be, one of the churches in Revelation, where he said, "I'm gonna, I'm gonna take my lamp, your lampstand away. I'm gonna cast my spirit away from you." And I just thought, how would my life be different if God's spirit wasn't there? You know, it's not a place you want to be, is it? And and thankfully, I think if you if you're asking that question, then God's hmm. God's working in you already. But if we're not asking the question, then perhaps we're becoming. You know, it's easy to become complacent, isn't it? And and, comf and comfortable. So I suppose it's just. I don't know what I'd be like if I wasn't, if, the God, if God's spirit wasn't within me, but I sense that it would be empty, it would be much emptier than it, than it is, you know? Thank you. Yes. Just a quick thought um, about how, you know, at the end of Malachi, it says, well, it doesn't say, but it's clear that God then doesn't speak mm. at, at the end and then until um, Matthew and that's always been like a really scary thought to me. It's like, well, I'm so glad I didn't live in that time when like God just went silent. But actually there have been times since that where he has gone silent and gone, no. And 
that that scary that it's bringing back to that. God is scary, and we have this like nice little. Oh, it's all right. It's after the cross. Mm. It's fine. We live on this side of salvation. We live on this side of the cross, and but actually, God can still do that. Mm. Um, mm. Thank you. Yeah, Richard. It'd be helpful if you could all sit together if you're going to do this. <laughs> Um, we watched a really good film last night. I won't give the plot away, but it was called Interstellar, and I'd highly recommend you watch it. But I can say, without giving anything away, that it's a long film, three hours, and the sole focus is how do these group of people change human history? And it's incredible the length that they go to. I mean, it, it's a fantastic film. But actually, I really like what you said about prayer, because I really struggle with prayer. How do I talk to a God who knows everything, who knows what I'm going to say in advance, all that kind of stuff. But it does change history, and it's actually the simplest way of changing the course of human history is to pray to God. It's mm. that simple. Absolutely, yeah, thank you. So what, so, so how do we ensure? Thank you for your contributions, but how do we ensure? Number one, just, I mean, again, just at the top of my own head, firstly, we have to be a church um, where it's not important about your uh, educational background or your economic background, or your age, or your gender. It ha we have to be a church that says, actually, all of that is not the way that we count things around here. Number two, we have to be a church where people pray boldly. We have a prayer group that meet on a Friday. I want you to pray boldly. Go for it. Change history. No pressure. We've got people who, over the winter particularly, serve at Boaz. We've got connections with Boaz over the years. People who are working with asylum seekers and the poorest of the poor. <coughs> However you do it, and whatever you do, it's an illustration of things that bring God delight. For some of you, you work week in, week out with some people in society who are most at need and in your day-to-day -day work, you meet these people, and it's easy in a work context for your heart to grow hard against them because sometimes it's the same sort of situations each time. We need to pray for you that your heart will stay soft and that you will do the work that God wants you to do. There are examples of gossip and injustice that happen every day of the week, and they happen in your office, and they happen at the school gate, and they happen in your family. And every time you stand up against the injustice and against the gossip and against the tittle-tattle, in small ways you're saying, I'm going to stand for what's right around here. And I don't actually, hopefully you don't do it horribly, but I don't really mind how other people see me. And you're standing for what God sees to be right. And for all the times when we speak for the people who have no voice, we're doing it in under the umbrella of God's grace and for the grace of God and by the grace of God, and you're in line with what God would want. And sometimes, and on the moments where we insulate ourselves, so we're not in any of those situations anymore, maybe we need to pray God put us back in those situations where we can be an agent of grace for those who have no hope. But let's not romanticize it. It's not exotic. It's not enjoyable all the time. Sometimes it's just a matter of 
you know, Mary talked about it earlier in different contexts. Sometimes it's just a matter of you keep turning up. You keep turning up. And no one keeps thanking you. You just keep doing the right thing. But I'm doing it for the sake of Jesus. A prophetic people. A people who are not afraid to pray boldly. A people who are not afraid of what other people can do to them. A people who are willing to carry the message. They've got backbone. They carry it and they don't give up. For a God who's sometimes quite scary. May it be. May it be.